to start a new series this morning. Impetus for this has been on my mind for a while, but was really sort of solidified last fall. My wife and I went to a conference. The theme was suffering and heaven's hope. And on day one, we heard about a half a dozen people who spoke truth from God's word, but each one of them from a context of having lived through or in the midst of prolonged seasons of suffering, chronic pain, debilitating illness, uh, family crises. Uh, through the rest of that week, there were just more stories of, of people who were suffering, of people who were being counseled as they were walking through suffering, terrible abuse, unexpected loss of a loved one, sudden financial crisis, long bouts of depression, uh, just one thing after another. And to a person, each one gave testimony to the, the grace and sustaining strength of God in all of that, how the gospel gave them hope in the midst of just the darkest moments. And, and each one to a person made the point that they would have never asked for that particular suffering, and yet... None of them would trade it in, having walked through it, the experience of it, and what they gained in the knowledge of God, in the walk with God during that time. The Bible is so clear about the fact that as followers of Jesus Christ, we will endure pain. Some of it is because we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world that is filled with chaos and disease and natural disasters. Others of it, is that suffering is caused by our own foolishness and sinful choices, and some of it is because we are the victims of other people's evil. Yet it is in that suffering that we often have some of our greatest experiences of the love and grace and power of God at work in us and through other people in our lives. It's in suffering that we often learn the most about how God sustains us through those moments, how he provides real peace even in the middle of the storm and, and how he can actually bring good to bear out of what seems like nothing but tragedy. Now, I say all that and know that none of us probably began the new year by saying, Lord, I, I so much want to know you better that I am praying that you will walk me through a valley of suffering so that I will experience you better and yet, the, in fact, the reality of, of talking about this topic almost, in a sense, seems intimidating because it almost feels like as we talk about it, it we're almost inviting that experience. But it, it, it is a topic that is addressed all throughout Scripture. The late David Paldison wrote, The wisdom to suffer well is like manna. You must receive nourishment every day. You can't store it up. Well, that's a great description. And what he's, what he's saying is you can't, read a book about suffering or hear a sermon about suffering and say, got it, I'm ready. I, I've, I've learned what there is and I'm, I'm prepared and I am now girded and, and I'm ready to experience whatever tragedy strikes. It's, it's in the seasons of suffering and weakness that we learn the meaning of what he's saying and that is that it is daily drawing on God for strength. It is daily looking to God for for care and peace and wise thinking in the midst of it is daily that we see God at work. But Pallas's point also, I think, is helpful in that I think part of what he's suggesting is even when we're not suffering, we should be seeking to grow in wisdom about it because Scripture is filled with teaching about how we ought to think rightly on this topic of suffering. And that's what we're going to do this month. The series is entitled Hopeful Suffering, Exalting Christ Together in Seasons of Pain. 
title comes from out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And, and Paul, if you remember back a while back, we went through 1 Thessalonians writing to a beleaguered group of, of, of young believers. They, they've come to faith in Christ and, and they trust in him, but they are confused because having trusted in him, life is still hard. They are still going through difficult experiences. They are beginning to experience persecution and they're struggling because their faith in Christ has not insulated them from troubles. In fact, one of the things that's confusing them the most is there are loved ones who also have believed in Jesus Christ who are now dying and, and they are panicking in some sense over what happens to those who die before Jesus returns. And so in the midst of that, Paul writes that we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren. We, we do not want you to grieve as do the rest who have no hope. As do the rest who have no hope. Use the New American Standard for that one because I think it says it a little better. ESV says as others who do not. It's really the rest. It's, it's saying you have hope. You have something unusual. You have a, a, a clinging to Jesus Christ that the rest do not have. And so when they grieve, they do not grieve with the hope that you do. So in the reality of your suffering and your pain and your grief, all of that is real, but in it, do not grieve as do the rest. Rather, grieve as those who have hope. In fact, grieve together. He's speaking to the body. We will grieve. Paul had just said in, in just a short time before that in 1 Thessalonians that, that afflictions will come. He's praying for them. In fact, earlier in 1 Thessalonians to not be shaken by afflictions because he says, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. We, we think of destiny, of something that we are destined for. And Paul says it's affliction is one of the things that we are destined for as believers. He repeats something similar to that in 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Trials and suffering will come, but we are, we are to endure them differently. Not as the rest do, but as those who have hope. And so we're going to consider how it is that we exalt Christ together as a body in seasons of suffering. Whether you are in that now, whether it lies ahead for you this year, or whether you are going to be alongside those who do... And we're going to talk through that over the course of these next three Sundays after this one. But we're going to start with probably one of the harder questions on this topic, and that is, where is God in our suffering? And, and, and in fact, more to the point, to make the question just a little bit sharper, what role does God have in our suffering, be it natural disaster or disease or suffering due to sin? Many Christians struggle with the very premise of that question because they want very much to distance God from suffering. They want very much to, to sort of insulate that God is over here and evil and, and the suffering that goes with it. That's the, the work of Satan and it's, it's human choices. And so suffering is all here and we need to keep God separated from that. Theologians have a, a word to try to describe this sort of dilemma. It's called theodicy. Definition you'd have it there is a response to the problem of evil in the world that attempts logically, relevantly, and consistently to defend God as simultaneously omnipotent, all powerful, all loving, and just despite the reality of evil. In your in your good instincts, you may have thought, "Well, I I do not need to defend God. God does not need defending from man," and that's that's correct. That's true. But the fact is, when you 
or someone near you is victimized by abuse, by someone else's evil, when you walk through seasons of pain and suffering, when you are alongside someone who has just suffered unimaginable loss, you will face questions. And so it's not really a question here so much of defending God as it is, where is God in this? What is God's role in these things? Where was God during the horrors of 9-11 or the killing fields of Cambodia? Where is God when you are in agony with relentless pain or you've suffered the loss that you did not at all expect? So here's what I want to do. We're going to look at three truths just to start with, three um, isolated truths. In a sense, we'll just kind of walk through each of these and then sort of pull them together. We're going to use the, the book of Job and do sort of a broad sweep on the book of Job to kind of pull these together and apply them particularly to the topic of suffering, how these intersect with suffering. And so three truths that, that individually, as Christians, we all tend to say amen to. We, we believe these things, we hold these things, but when we start to, to mingle them, particularly in suffering, that's when it gets a little trickier. The first one, and let me just hit the three of them quickly, and then we'll come back and, and think about them more, is, is God is sovereign. The truth that God is sovereign. And let's be sure we understand what that means. It's a word that's used several times in the Bible to describe God, and in fact, it, it means a master, a supreme authority. The, the Greek word that's used to describe sovereign Lord is the same word from which we get our English word despot. Now that despot carries sort of some negative connotations to it, but the idea is of one who has full control. He is in charge, he is a ruler, and that's the idea of the word sovereign. Secondly, man is responsible for his own thoughts, words, actions, and sin. Man is responsible. We make choices to believe or disbelieve God, to obey God or not, to act out of love or hatred. We make choices for which we are responsible, accountable before God. And then third is God is good. In all his ways, God is right and just, perfect and beautiful. He is an absolute ruler, but he is not a despot because he is good. He is perfect in goodness. Now again, we could we could spend at least a Sunday morning on each of those and then another Sunday morning on talking about Job, but we're going to try to do this all in this time, and you're thinking, oh boy, um, but we'll, we'll do it. You did it in first service, and you're here, so we're good. First one is God is sovereign. Let me give you some scripture just to think about first. Psalm 89, 11 says, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The universe belongs to God. It is his by virtue of him making it. He is the creator. It belongs to him. He is the, the owner, if you will, by virtue of his right of creation. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. All that God desires to do, he accomplishes. God accomplishes his will. Phil read from Psalm 104 before, and I hope you were thinking as he was reading Psalm 104, and it speaks of just the majesty of God and our dependence on God because of his creation and his providential upholding of the universe. Ephesians 1.11 says, we were predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, just another way of saying that God accomplishes what God says he will do, whatever God purposes. 
two stories, one Old Testament, one new that sort of bear this out, the familiar one in the Old Testament, Joseph. You remember Joseph, and as a young man, he is, as a young boy still, in fact, he is sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers despise him, and, and they despise the, the dreams that he has given and the interpretations that he has given and what God is doing in him, and they sell him to slave traders, and he is taken to Egypt. He goes through the experience of imprisonment there, and, and through it all, we find Joseph as being elevated by God to become the right-hand man to the ruler of Egypt. So much so that God takes Joseph and uses him to orchestrate the physical salvation of his own family from starvation when famine comes across the land. Famine that would have wiped them out. And so years after the wickedness of these brothers who betrayed their own brother, not caring at all about his life, willing to sell it off and have it be destroyed. Years after that, his brothers now stand before him as he identifies himself to them, and they are frightened, and Joseph says, don't be afraid. You remember the, the line in Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive. Joseph is affirming that what you did was wicked. It was a betrayal, it was evil, and you meant it for that. You weren't trying to accomplish God's purposes in that. You were being selfish and sinful, and you meant to destroy me, and God in that nonetheless meant it for good. God was sovereignly working out his plan so that now our family is alive and has survived the famine because of what God has done in his orchestrating of these things. Crucifixion of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, Peter's preaching in Acts makes it very clear that it is God's sovereignty at work in the crucifixion of the Son of God. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem and says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The Greek for definite plan is the idea of setting boundaries establishing that this is the line right here. You can't go any further. It is saying that this is, this is God having determined this is how it will be. His son, Jesus Christ, would be crucified. That is the predetermined plan of God. It's even more explicit in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are talking about how Herod and Pilate and the Romans and the Jewish leaders all conspired together against Jesus. But then Peter and John say to God that all this was to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There is no more explicit way in Scripture to point to the rule of God than to speak of the hand of God. It is the work of the hand of God. It is the, the, the hand of the ruler. And so they are saying here to God, this was according to your hand. You determined this. This crucifixion of your son was the work of God in his plan being carried out. And so you have the evil intentions and violence and hatred of Herod, Pilate, the Romans, the Jews, carrying out their rebellion. And yet it is all in keeping with the specific plan of God to crucify the Messiah his son, for the sins of his people. There are dozens more verses where God is shown ordaining, causing, directing, upholding, 
guiding, carrying out his plan. Second Chronicles 22 speaks of God ordaining the fall of King Ahaziah. Uh, the book of Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, looks as the, the nation of Babylon, the evil nation of Babylon, is coming to judge Judah, and, and, and Habakkuk acknowledges that, God, you ordained the rise of this nation in order to be an instrument of judgment. And so it is the work of God. He is sovereign. Secondly, man is responsible for his thoughts, words, actions, and sins. Go back to one of the verses we just looked at a moment ago in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, and, and catch the rest of the verse now. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Peter says to the audience he's speaking to, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What the hand of God ordained, the hands of evil men carried out. They crucified Jesus. They are responsible. They are guilty. They are the ones who are described as lawless. And God's sovereignty does not in any way mitigate their guilt. They were not helpless pawns in this. They are acting out of their own evil nature to crucify the Son of God. They are acting in accord with what they desire to do, and they are responsible for that. Again, Acts chapter 4 that we just talked about, Herod and Pilate and the Romans and the Jewish leaders, they are described in Acts chapter 4 as he has just got done saying how this is by the hand of God. He goes on to describe them in terms of, of Psalm 2 as a fulfillment of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is the psalm that says, why do the nations rage? Why are they determined to destroy the Lord's anointed? And what he's saying is Herod and Pilate and, and, and all of these are all willing participants in their desire to rage against God, to destroy God's anointed. They want to cling to their own imaginary hold on power that they have, and they are willing to crucify Jesus to do so, and they are responsible for that. And so those who killed Jesus were guilty of carrying out that evil. Human responsibility is as well, all through Scripture. Joshua and his charge to the people in Joshua 24, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served, the gods of the Amorites, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We could say John 3.16, for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All of these are statements in scripture calling us to respond, to obey, to believe, to act in faith, and we are held responsible when we do not. So all across scripture, God is seen as sovereign, and yet man is responsible. The last point is the goodness of God. Revelation 15, the redeemed are singing, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. You alone are holy. Your ways are right, God. You are holy. You are just. That's why James can say every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father, that it is from God that we receive good things. Moses in Deuteronomy 32 says God's works are perfect. All his ways are just. God's law in, in Psalm 19 is perfect. His testimony is trustworthy. His precepts are right and his rules are true. Psalm 25, 8 says good and upright is the Lord. God is good and he is sovereign. God's will is done. He says it himself in Isaiah 14, verse 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. 
we like to couch that in terms of that's good things, right? That, that, that's, I know the plans I have for you. We take Jeremiah out of context. And it's, it's, it's good things that he's planned and he's purposed. And yet in the very context in which he speaks that in Isaiah 14, he is talking about the raising up of Babylon to judge Judah, the raising up of an evil nation to come in and be an instrument of righteous punishment against the nation of Judah. And God is saying, what I have said will happen. What I have purposed will stand. And so the Babylonians will come in and they will not only wipe out Judah, but they'll take over from the evil of Assyria. And then later on in Isaiah, we come across Cyrus of Persia and how God will raise him up and he will defeat the Babylonians. The Babylonians and Assyrians were notorious in history for their violence and for their evil. Cyrus was bent on expanding his own empire when he invades Babylon. Each is responsible before God for their choices, their actions, their evil. And yet each one is also very much an instrument in the hands of God in the course of history as God is carrying out his plan. God's sovereignty and human responsibility exist side by side. His Sovereignty does not depend on human actions and choices. Many have taught that over the years. There's, there's been a great debate amongst schools of theology on this, and many have said, well, God so cherishes your freedom, human freedom, that he, it, he willingly makes himself to be contingent or dependent on what you do. He, he waits to see what you will do, and he responds to that because he, he wants to preserve human freedom. And so they'll, 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 they'll couch it in terms of God, God knows the end, and God will win in the end, but all along the way, God is, is reacting to what human choices are, and he's having to sort of navigate his way in, in response to that. And I would submit to you that just from the, the smattering of verses we've looked at this morning, it is clear that God is not described in Scripture having to make his plans contingent on human actions or choices. He does what he has planned. He does what he has purposed. And he's equally clear that that sovereignty then does not minimize then the actions of human beings. In other words, there's not then the response that another side will give of, well, this is just fatalism. If, if God is sovereign and his way is done, then therefore we are just sort of helpless pawns in this game of God and, and he does what he pleases and, and we're just helpless in it. The truth is we act freely. Those who crucified Jesus, the brothers of Joseph, the, the evil one after another in Scripture, we know it in our own hearts, we choose to do by our own actions. It is what we are choosing, and we are responsible to do that. The Bible simultaneously upholds God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. As finite human beings, we may struggle with those two in parallel, holding them in that tension and, and accepting that both are taught and both are clear in Scripture, and it's okay if we struggle because we are finite human beings so long as we believe what Scripture teaches. We are not God, and so we don't comprehend things the way God does, and in God's mind, both of these are taught side by side throughout Scripture along with the fact that he is perfectly good. God ordains all things, and it is right and just and a reflection of his holiness. All right, those are the three sort of truths that I want you to keep in mind now and turn to Job, Job chapter 1. And we're just going to do sort of the jet tour version 
of the book of Job. We're going to get from 1 to 42, but we're going to skip a lot along the way that I'm going to encourage you to read on your own as you have your own time to meditate and, and have devotional time. But this is where I think we see a great example of the intersection of these things. Sovereignty of God, responsibility of man, and the goodness of God. Job 1 verse 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job is described in that verse and then in the ensuing verses as a godly man. He has 10 grown children. He has enormous wealth. He has been wonderfully blessed. He is one who continuously offers sacrifices to God. He worships the Creator. In fact, he, he brings forth sacrifices on behalf of his children and standing in their place like a, a, a priest of the family. Job is determined to walk after God in righteousness. There's no comment here on, on, on Job's sin. He's certainly not sinless. That's not what Scripture is trying to portray. But all that is described here is a man who endeavors to strive after righteousness, to do what God has called him to do. Now, the story gets a little complicated. Verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Let's stop there for a moment. That, that right there is sort of one of those mind-blowing things. Sons of God is another name for angels. Satan is a fallen angel, the chief, if you will, over the fallen angels. And so we get that angels are in the presence of God, that they come before the presence of God and maybe have some kind of accountability for what they are doing. But here is Satan to come and to discuss sort of what is happening in Satan's domain at this point. He is in the presence of God. He has access to the creator in heaven. Verse 7. Then the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Revelation 12.10 tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren day and night before God. There is in some way Satan actively bringing accusations against God's people before God. And so perhaps it is in the context of that that God says to Satan, what about Job? Have you considered this guy? What, what do you have against him? Because he is upright. He's blameless. You got nothing on Job. And so Satan then is, is, gives back a, a pragmatic and, and most cynical of responses. Of course Job worships you. You give him everything. Job's got it made. It's, it's like Job's got one of those invisible fences around his property because nothing ever harms Job. He gets everything that he needs or wants. He's blessed with a big family. You pull all that back. You turn off the invisible fence, and it all goes away. 
It's not a surprising charge. This is the basis of what is modern-day prosperity preaching, which essentially says, well, worship God and God will bless you with stuff. It, it's a transactional sort of thing, that, that if, if I do this and God does that, then we're all happy in the process and we get what we want, and, and God then is worthy of our worship. Believe in Jesus and have enough faith and you'll be prosperous. That's essentially Satan's charge. God, you buy worshipers. Or, or to put it in the, the form of a question, is God worthy of worship simply for being God, simply for being the just creator of the universe? Or, let's put it another way and think of it this way. Would a God who ordains suffering for his people be worthy of their worship? Would a God who pulls back the invisible fence and who now ordains suffering for one of his own, would he be worthy of worship? And Satan says, there's not a chance. I, I, he says, I know how this story goes. Satan knew God's sovereignty. Make sure you see that in this passage. Satan is a, he's understanding of God's sovereignty at this point, that he is not touching Job apart from God permitting that, apart from God giving him permission to do so. And so he proposes a test. You remove the blessing and the protection and Job will curse you. Satan's argument is that if the sovereign hand of God ordains suffering, then the sufferer will ultimately reject God. That, that's the simple equation that Satan puts forth. And God says, go ahead. He allows Satan to have his way with everything that belongs to Job. And we read the story and it is just unthinkable tragedy of what Job in a seeming heartbeat experiences, enemies come in and they begin to destroy and to steal all of his stuff. They kill his servants. His children are, are gathered, having a celebration of some kind in a home and a wind comes and sweeps and destroys the home and his children are all killed. And messengers come one after another, running out of breath to tell Job, everything is gone. You've got nothing. It's all been destroyed. Your children are God. And in an instant, Job's life is careened into catastrophe, and he is in utter agony. End of chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's, that's his response. That sets the scene. We'll come back to that, that thought in a moment. This provides the impetus for chapter 2. Satan's back in the presence now because Job has just done what Satan did not predict he would do. And so Satan is back in the presence of God in verse 3 of chapter 2. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh. And he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. You know the story. Satan then plagues Job with agonizing sores, whether it's some kind of leprosy or some other disease. 
you now have taken the gut-wrenching, emotional, and mental anguish that Job has already been in the midst of, and you are now compounding it with incredible physical suffering to the point that Job is pictured taking bits of pottery to scrape his skin to try to find some relief, just some measure of relief from the pain that he's in. It's a horrible scene. Verse 9. Then Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In the midst of his suffering, his mind ravaged, as was his wife's, by just the emotional loss of what they had experienced and now him walking through the terrible physical agony he is in, Satan now uses Job's wife to level the very charge that Satan said to God, Job would do. You take it all away and he will curse you. And now comes Job's wife, his close companion, to say to him, curse God. Look at you. Have you looked at yourself? Do you see where you are sitting in this ash heap in the, in the dump with nothing? Why would you do anything but curse God? Chapter 3 begins to recount Job's despair. He not only says that he wishes he hadn't been born, Job goes all the way back to the night on which he was conceived and says, I wish it had never even happened. I wish I'd never even been conceived. I wish I'd never been here for any of this. I wish I'd never had to experience what I've gone through. Some of you have, have felt that kind of long-term debilitating pain or you've agonized at the abuse that someone else has put on you has done to you, or you've lost a child or a spouse, you've known terror in some way, and you've suffered, and you, you know that feeling of just wishing that somehow this is just a nightmare, just somehow that I would wake up and this would be gone, and I would never have been through this. And Job knows it's still very real, and he's in it. His friends come. Much of the rest of Job is the, the miserable counsel of his so-called friends, right? He has three friends who are silent for the first week. They are just with him alongside, being companions, grieving, and then, then they start to talk. And what they say from a horizontal plane Sort of hard to argue with on one level because they're looking at the scope of this kind of suffering and they're saying, Job, friend, what are you hiding? You know, there's got to be some sin here. There's got to be something you're coveting in your heart. There's something God's trying to wring out of you. Just acknowledge it. And Job is forced to defend himself to them. And he, he goes back at them strong and he says, no, there is not. And in fact, in the process, then he begins to cry out to God and he pleads to God and he questions God. And it is, it is in here, and, and again, I would urge you this week, take some time and just read through Job. It's in here you start to get a flavor for some of Job's questions where he, he strays into some of the area of just this doesn't feel particularly just at this point as they're saying all these things I know they're wrong and I know I haven't done anything to deserve this and he's now beginning to at least raise some questions to God of how is this working that I'm like this and so in chapter 7 he asks God if he has sinned in some way and he says why have you made me your mark why have I become a burden to you why God have you put me in the bullseye like this 
I can't think of anything I've done to deserve this. Why are you doing this to me? He begins to imply, at least, that God is being unjust. In chapter 10, he pleads, Let me know why you contend against me. Your hands fashioned me and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. We get that. Job's saying it doesn't make sense. And yet there's that, that hint, at least, of this, this doesn't feel particularly just at this point. I think Carson brings this tension together really well. D.A. Carson says, Job's speeches are the anguish of a man who knows God, who wants to know God better, who never once doubts the existence of God, who remains convinced at bottom of the justice of God, but who cannot make sense of these entrenched beliefs in the light of his own experience. I think that's exactly right. It, I, I know what's true here, but I am in the midst of it, and it just doesn't make sense. And I don't know why you would do this. And so it's finally in chapter 38 that God does what Job has pleaded for throughout the book. God speaks. And he speaks to answer Job. And we see in chapter 38, it's out of a raging storm, the voice of God comes. In these chapters at the end of Job, from 38 on, where God is the primary actor here, the, these chapters are as notable for what God does not say as much as what he says. Because what he does not do is he doesn't answer Job's why questions. There is no, well, Job, let me, let me take you back to chapter 1. And, and show you this video of what, what took place that you didn't see. He doesn't answer Job's why questions. He doesn't offer Job an explanation. In fact, when God begins to speak, he calls Job out for speaking out of ignorance when he has suggested that perhaps somehow in this God has got the measure wrong and this is a little unjust. And, and God confronts Job. And he questions Job. And his questions are just this remarkable series of sort of rhetorical questions. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Job, what part did you have in the creation of the universe? Job, have you, have you ever made a sunrise? Have you ever caused a snowstorm? Do you uphold the animal kingdom at all? Job, do you, have you ever made a bird that flies or a fish that swims? How about it, Job? You ever done any of those? And in chapter 40, God says to Job, essentially the start of chapter 40 is, if you intend to find fault, if you're thinking here that there's something to be figured out about why I did what I did, and maybe there's something to point at, if you intend to find fault with the Almighty, you need to be able to answer these questions. This is the, this is the entrance exam to be able to do what you've done in terms of asking questions. If you can answer these questions and you, you've had a part in that, then you get the right to ask that. And, and chapter 40 tells us Job is silenced. Job's <laughs> got nothing for you, God. And yet God speaks again. Interesting thing is that God speaks again. Walt Kaiser, who's a great Old Testament scholar, says of chapters 40 and 41, even though Job is now silenced before God, it does not seem as if he has learned all that God has for him to learn. Therefore, it will be necessary for God to take Job deeper into an understanding of his purposes and his will. Yes, Job must go still deeper into the knowledge of God and his nature. I want to submit to you that, that quote, what Kaiser says there, that that answers a lot of our question about this book of Job and suffering and what it is 
that we need to take from this. The balance of God's discourse after Job is silenced when he speaks in 40 and 41 could be summarized like essentially with, do you think you can do my job? Do you think you can be God? This, and this isn't the naive blasphemy of a movie where God says, you want to find out how hard it is to be me, I'll let you, I'll let you take my role for a while. This is the God of the universe with a string of rhetorical questions telling Job whose suffering has been immense and tragic, it is God saying to Job, Job, man is not my equal. You are not equal to me. This is, this is God's answer, not an explanation, not a, a dissection of evil. It's God's response to Job of, I alone am God. You cannot put on my splendor and majesty. His description in these chapters is, I subdue beasts of the earth and I control cosmic forces and you do not. I am perfect in goodness and justice and you are not my equal, much less a superior who can interrogate or find fault. Take a look at chapter 42 and Job's response. And I think herein lies the clue for us in how we perceive suffering in light of the sovereignty of God. Job chapter 42, God has just completed speaking. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes, my eyes sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Just for clarity, verse 4 in there is, is Job repeating the words of God. When God came to confront Job, that's what God said. You, you got questions? Well, so do I. Here are my questions. You go ahead and you answer these first. And so here's Job now reciting back and realizing how foolish he sounded at points with some of the things that he was beginning to imply about God. But after all the pain and all the loss and all the suffering that Job had been through, he worships God. And look at what, what he worships. Look what grabs him about God, he confesses the sovereignty of God. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Do you understand what that means? Job is confessing his belief that if God did not intend for Job to suffer, that if it was God's plan for all of Job's children to be alive and gathered with him in that moment and for all of his possessions to still be there, if that was God's plan, then Job would not have suffered at all. That, that, that's what he's acknowledging. And so the flip side of that is also what he's acknowledging. And that is that, therefore, you have executed your plan. God, you have ordained this. That nothing happens that is outside of your plan. And he is, he is a worshiper of God's sovereignty. He's not pinning evil on God. Satan is the one who has done this. Satan is the one who has carried out the, the actual evil activities. But we should not pretend that somehow God is standing by as Satan is 
pummeling Job and that God is somehow helpless and saying, oh, boy, this, this is terrible. I hate to see this happening. This is Job now confessing, God, I, I know that you do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job's suffering was the outworking of God's plan. And in fact, Job even takes it a step further when what he essentially says in the balance of what we just read is, you know what? I, I knew you before. Now you are even greater and more unfathomable to me. Now that I have experienced this, now you are, it, it, it's, it's too wonderful for words for me to explain. It, his description there in verse 5, I, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, and it leads me to repentance, is essentially Job saying, I knew you before, and I worshipped you. But having walked through this, I know you even more, and you are even greater in my eyes. I have all the more reason to repent of, of any sort of foolish sort of thoughts in my mind that somehow you were being unjust. He is in awe of who God is. God is still good and mighty and worthy of worship. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord is not a cliche. It's not a slogan. It is the heartfelt words of a man who lost everything and yet believed at bottom that God could not be thwarted. And therefore, if this is what God intended, then God was doing it for God's purpose, and God's purposes are right. And he is still good, and he still keeps his promises, and he's still worthy of worship. The God who by his own hand ordained the brutal crucifixion of his son to be nailed to a cross for the sins of you and I is this God who is with us in our darkest valleys and who is meeting out peace to us and wisdom to us. He is not diminished by Satan. He is not diminished by our foolish, foolish choices. It is Satan who must yield to God. If, if there's anywhere that that's clear in Scripture, it is right here when we see Satan who must yield to God. Yes, Satan is evil and he seeks to destroy, but, but Job, Job doesn't focus on the devil. Job looks to God for security and hope and truth and goodness and life. And he found it even when he lost everything. And I would submit to you that if Job could plead with us in our suffering, it would be to hold fast and believe God is God. You see, the, the, the reality of when, when trials come, when, when stuff starts going wrong, when we are suddenly without a job that we didn't expect, or we suddenly, a loved one is sick with cancer, or we've got this bizarre, painful illness and the doctors can't figure it out, the reality when those things come is they, they threaten to become all-consuming. They, they threaten to loom large and to be just dominating in our lives and, and we are focused on, on suffering. And, and what Satan wants us to do in that moment is to turn our back on God. It's what Job said. It's what Job's wife said. Curse him. He clearly doesn't care about you in this. Curse him. When, when, when those circumstances 
loom large, God must become larger. Our our meditation on God is what must increase even when we don't get answers. It's what what Psalm 63 taught us last week that Jeremy preached, that that we must meditate on God and who God is and know him because our, our trials are not trivial. I'm not suggesting to you by any stretch that what this is somehow saying is we just need to minimize the, the idea of trials, but the reality is those, those trials will quite naturally become large, and it is, it is on us to pursue the wisdom of God, to learn from the suffering of Job, to dig deeply into the truth of God's word, to surround ourselves by brothers and sisters in Christ who will speak God's truth into our lives so that God will be large so that we will be in awe of the creator and know that even when we don't fathom his ways, he's still just and right. Job knew God before his suffering, but in the midst of devastating heartache, he cried out to God like he had never cried out to God before, and he found hope and comfort in that, so that in the end he could say, I I know you can do all things. I... I've now seen you, and I rest in you. I don't know what 2020's got ahead of us. There are no doubt some of us are going to walk through things in 2020 that we we wouldn't pick on the multiple choice lists. They they would be very low. Some of us will deal with sickness, and some of us will deal with kids and issues and problems and all kinds of stuff. I want to encourage you that I think the call here for us is to think deeply about our creator, is to love him, to meditate on him, to in in every moment that we can, to think on his greatness and to allow that to gird us for whatever he has ordained for us in his good plan. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for speaking into the the pain, the seasons of life that are hard. We thank you for showing us through Job, reminding us through your truth that you are a very present help in times of trouble, that you do not forsake your people. Father, we, we are so easily distracted by so many things. As we begin this new year, help us to be a people who would, who would, by your grace, grow in our devotion to not just gathering on Sunday mornings, but to grow in our devotion to know you better, to think on the things of Scripture, to hear from others who will speak godly things into our lives, to, to meditate on your truth. May we go from this place today more convinced of your sovereignty and your goodness and your justice and having an even larger view of who you are and knowing that whatever you have ordained for your people, it is for the sake of your glory and it is for our good. Father, if there are any here who are not trusting in Jesus Christ, then these, these promises do not hold up unless they are willing to to turn to you unless they are willing to bow. And we pray that you would bring them today to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cause them to see that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness of sin and there is life and hope and a God who is there with his people. 
Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the suffering that you have walked with us through and for what lies ahead. We pray that we would be found much like Job, finding you faithful, believing in who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.